blurry morning, the snow on the ground. Um, we're excited to be together. And one of the things that, why we're doing this is because we want to uh, encourage leaders in our church and provide, hopefully, some teaching and um, resources that'll be helpful and useful. So I hope that you guys um, are blessed this morning and, and gain from it. Um, it's my privilege to introduce Bob. Um, I've known Bob since I was a college student at IUP in the late 90s. Um, when I uh, first met him at a, a campus ministry, basic, where I also met my wife Sarah and Joe and Mary and a lot of other uh, people that are still in town here. Um, but Bob has just blessed me personally in my, in my faith and uh, relationship with Christ and um, I think he's just got a gift for, a, a passion for truth, and Bob started his own um, Search for Me Ministries in 2006, and he's got a table set up out in the lobby, uh, so you can check that out uh, during a break or at the end. Um, there's a lot of really good resources and books out there, uh, and, and if, you, if you've had the privilege of hearing Bob speak before or reading any of his resources, um, it's just really apparent that he's got a passion for truth and, and teaching and, uh, and also for how to apply that practically. So um, thank you for being here, Bob, and uh, I'll turn it over to you. Are we, am I on here? Can you hear me? Excellent. Well, I, I want to begin by apologizing for uh, throwing a wrench in last Saturday. Um, we had a little bit of a visit from the COVID in our household, and I uh, appreciate your prayers. It didn't get, didn't get really bad for either my wife or I, and we're past the quarantine period now, but um, if you want to keep your distance, I'm okay. If you treat me by a, uh, like a leper, I, I can live with that. Um, hopefully my voice will be fine, but other than that, I think we're, we're doing pretty good. So thanks for being patient with us. I want to talk um, this morning about prayer. And I, I remember a time in my life where prayer seemed like an unfulfilled duty more than anything else. I was serving in, in a couple of key capacities as leaders, and I always had this thing in the back of my mind that I should be praying more, I should be praying more, I should be praying more, but it wasn't translating into my, my practical everyday life. And I, would, I remember thinking, you know, I just don't have the time to pray, I don't have the time to pray. And then uh, one day I had time, and it's like, I don't want to pray. Um, so there's something that just wasn't right. And what I want to do, what I don't want to do this morning is put on you the same mindset of obligation that I was struggling under. And so we're going to take some time, and we're going to look at mindsets. And this first session in particular, I want to talk about what I would call the theology of prayer. And just getting an idea and understanding in our hearts how prayer is work, how it should work, how God has designed it to work. So uh, we're also going to have a little bit of a Q&A time after this session, so if you've got any questions or, or thoughts, you want to write them down and then we can talk about it, that would be wonderful. But let me, let me pray. Father, we, I thank you for the leaders that are here, Lord God. I thank you for those who are tuning in and who are devoted to you, Lord God, who serve your people, Father God, who uh, love you with all their hearts, Father. Lord, we give you our hearts afresh this morning, and we look to your Holy Spirit, Lord God, to write your truths upon our hearts and our minds. And Lord, we just uh, join 
David's ancient prayer, Lord, that to search us and try us and see if there be any hurtful way within us. And specifically, Lord, if we have any wrong ways of thinking that are related to prayer, uh, we're asking, Lord, that you, Lord, would reveal your truth to us. Lord, that we might align with your plans and purposes and that we might be made more effective as your servants. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, many years ago, I was, I was reading a book by a, uh, an inspirational Christian leader. We'll put it that way. And he was, he was you know, widely regarded as somebody who was very inspirational in his writings. And he had written a few paragraphs about prayer, and some I'm reading it. And essentially, he, he likened prayer to the idea of shooting a shotgun into the sky and if you've ever shot a shotgun, it's, it doesn't have a single projectile. It has a bunch of BBs that spread out. And so his, what he was saying is that if you shoot enough prayers into heaven, eventually one or two of them is going to hit their mark. <laughs> and I can't say that when I read that, it did a lot for my prayer life. You know, <laughs> it's just like, that sounds like an awful lot of effort for minimal results. You know, it, it just didn't quite register with me. The point I want to make here is that our attitude toward prayer has a huge influence on how much and how we actually pray. Our, our thinking, the, the mindset that we carry into it. So I want to start by talking about what I would call the theology of prayer. And we're just going to look into the scriptures a little bit. We're going to touch on a few issues that might be a little bit controversial. And hopefully I'm going to navigate them in a way that we all come out okay and, and nobody's mad at each other. Uh, let's start with Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. I always go back to the beginning on just about everything. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It's that last section that I really want to key in on, where he says to rule over the earth, fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky. The whole idea here is that of dominion. God was giving humanity dominion over the earth. Psalm 115.16 says, The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth... He has given to the sons of men. Now, what, what do these things mean? Essentially, the idea is this, that, that God is sovereign over the entire universe, sovereign over the earth, sovereign over the world, but he has given humanity a stewardship to rule over this planet as his representatives. So we're not, you know, we're not saying that we are owners of the earth. We're saying that we are stewards of the earth, that we, we are given the task to manage this planet uh, for God's glory. This is the design that he has created, that he would work not separately, but within conjunction with humanity. This is the way he designed earth to function. Now, when Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden tree, they really boogered up the works. You know, they... They pretty much made a mess of everything. Uh, in particular, there were three things that happened when they ate from the forbidden fruit. The first is that humanity was separated from God. Uh, you know, it was a, the temptation was a, was a message of independence, essentially. 
The second was that humanity chose close allegiance with the kingdom of darkness. And then the third is that humanity surrendered their stewardship of the earth to the dark lord. That sounds a little bit like Lord of the Rings-ish, you know what I mean? That, uh, and all of the earth fell sway under the dark lord. You know what I was doing whenever I was laying on, on the couch sick last week. This is the key part that we've got to get. That God had given humans stewardship over this planet. In, in a sense, you could say it was a legal stewardship. The authority had come from heaven, and he gave it to the human race. But when Adam and Eve aligned themselves with the serpent, who was Satan in disguise, they surrendered the stewardship of this planet to the dark one. As you can imagine, that's not necessarily a good thing. Uh, the devil is not a nice guy. And he took over management of the earth, and he became what Paul calls in the New Testament the quote-unquote God of this world. And so uh, when we look at all of the chaos throughout history that we see on this planet, uh, it really comes down to this idea that Adam and Eve took what was a pristine planet and they surrendered the stewardship of it, the legal stewardship of it, to, to Satan and to his demons. And they aren't nice guys either. So if you thought that your phone company had bad customer service, let me tell you, it is way worse when it comes to dealing with the powers of darkness. This is where we make a contrast between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. There is a very clear contrast between how the kingdom of light operates and how the kingdom of dark darkness operates. Let me read a couple of passages from Genesis 2. It says, Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree, this is 2.9, every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, we could get into a long discussion, and I, I love a long discussion on this, why God put this tree of knowledge of good and evil here, but we're not going to talk about that right now. Um, but the idea is that they had a choice. The two trees were in the garden. And then verses 15 through 17, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat from it, you will surely die. Here's the thing that we cannot miss, is that because God created humans in his image, he gave us the freedom and the capacity to love. 1 John chapter 4 tells us that God is love. So if we were created in his image, we have the freedom, and the capacity to love. Love is such a fascinating, confusing concept. Because by its very nature, love demands freedom. If love doesn't have freedom, it really isn't love. You know, as much, there, there are days when I would love to be able to just, um, you know, take a panel off my wife's back and adjust, uh, you know, the settings inside of her so that she would love me more uh, or that she would put up with some of my shenanigans. But it doesn't work that way. Love has to be entirely voluntary or it isn't love at all. Um, there's got to be something within us that wants to do this. But when you give somebody the freedom to love, you also give them the freedom to not love. 
And, and many of us have been around long enough that we know the pain of somebody not loving us in return, whether it be a romantic relationship or a family member or a friend or something. Uh, we cherish the value of the friendships that come out of that love, but we also know the pain that goes with somebody choosing not to love. At the same time, would we take away, would we want that freedom to be taken away? I don't think so, even with the pain. We value love because it, 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 it's so special in that somebody is choosing to say, I care this much about you and I am lifting you up and I am honoring you in my heart. So this is God's motivation that he created us in his image with the freedom and the capacity to love, uh, wanting us to love him in return, obviously, but loving us regardless. Now, when we think about the devil's motivation, uh, there's another a passage that I often refer to in Isaiah chapter 14 that talks about uh, Lucifer's fall from grace in heaven. And it's a prophetic passage, so it's got a dual meaning. It's talking about the king of Babylon, but it's also talking about Lucifer's fall. And, and verses 12 to 14 in particular stand out to me. And I, I just want you to pray, pay attention to the phrase, I will, as I read this passage. It says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And I will make myself like the Most High. What's fascinating is if you go through the scriptures and you find God's I will statements, God's I will statements are very, very different than Lucifer's I will statements. God's I will statements are statements of love and blessing. Lucifer's are all about lifting himself up. And a key theme in this, in this I will phrase that is repeated five, five times here in this short passage, the key theme is that of control. Control. In seeking what he wants, the dark Lord ever seeks to control and to dominate others. This is where we see a huge difference between the powers of darkness and the king that we serve. God reigns over everything. We, we, we know that in the scriptures, that God reigns. But he does not control everything that happens. And this is a really challenging concept for us to grasp because as soon as we start going down that road, there's all kinds of questions uh, that come into mind. Humans, and we've kind of followed Lucifer's path, okay? When we want to assert our will, we do it by means of control. We do it by means of threat or intimidation or manipulation or nagging or violence or we could find all kinds of controlling means that humans use in order to accomplish their purposes we can find all kinds of controlling means that the powers of darkness use to accomplish their purposes but when we talk about the king of glory he doesn't control everything that people do but somehow he is able to take our free choices and to work them toward his sovereign purposes. This to me is one of the most amazing things about who God is, is that he can take our freedom 
And somehow on the other end of it, he accomplishes what he chooses to accomplish. But he does it without controlling us into doing things. That to me is amazing. That, that to me is one of the greatest testimonies of who God is, is that he is able to accomplish what he wants without forcing anybody along those lines. So even though the Lord is the owner of all things, even though Adam and Eve really boogered things up by eating from that tree and aligning with the dark Lord, God has established this pattern that he would work through us as the stewards of this earth. And even though we messed it all up, he has not abandoned his plan. You know, he could have said, okay, they screwed it up. Let's forget that. Let's start all over. We'll do it a different way. No, he hasn't done that. Uh, he has chosen to give us stewardship of the earth, and he has not revoked that no matter how much of a mess we have made of things. Instead, what he wants to do is to work through the circumstances and to accomplish his purposes. And in particular, he came up with what I think is an ingenious plan, which was for Jesus to take human form and to come to this earth as a sinless person, to live in victory over sin, uh, to live in dominion over the power of sin and pride and the temptations of, of the evil one, and to reclaim the stewardship of the earth for humanity. So in this day, since the time of Christ, uh, the stewardship of the earth is no longer legally tied to the powers of darkness. They're more usurpers. They got in and they squatted in a place and they, they just said, we are not letting go. Uh, but the legal right, the legal ownership has been restored to humanity because of Jesus' sinless life and victory over sin and death. So the restoration is there in principle. It's the practical working of it out that we're still trying to deal with. Does this all make sense to everybody? Hopefully we're, we're good on the same page. So not only has Jesus um, become the legal king of the earth, he has enlisted us as his ambassadors to advance that kingdom. And with the king comes a kingdom. That's the idea of it. The, the king has come to the earth, and with the king comes the kingdom, which is his domain, the, the domain of the king. And if we would take time and read through the New Testament carefully, looking for this phrase, either the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, we would see that it is all throughout the New Testament. One of the mistakes that I think that we make is we separate the message of the gospel from the message of the kingdom. You know, we, we approach the gospel as uh, receive Jesus into your heart, be forgiven of your sins, and someday you'll go to heaven. But really, the gospel is the message of the kingdom that the king has come to earth, the king is glorious, and that we can transfer our citizenship from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son. And as we do that, uh, we are forgiven of our sins, we are liberated from the power of death and darkness, and we are brought into eternal life. That's all part of the gospel of the kingdom. And so the key here is realizing that the gospel and the kingdom are not two separate messages. All throughout the, Old or the New Testament, we find this emphasis on the kingdom of God. John the Baptist, when he came on the scene, he said, uh, came preaching in Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven 
is at hand. That's in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And then Matthew 4 says, From this time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you would go through and, and, and just you know, look for this phrase, you'll find that Jesus preached the kingdom. Jesus' disciples preached the kingdom. Uh, right before Jesus ascended to heaven, he preached the kingdom. It was a message that was prevalent for the early church that the, the kingdom of God has come to the earth, it is advancing across the earth, and that we have a privilege of being a part of that kingdom. So through grace, we have the privilege of renouncing our citizenship to the kingdom of darkness and aligning with the kingdom of light, becoming citizens of the kingdom of light. This is the honor and the privilege that we have. And we do this through prayer. This is really where prayer enters into the picture. There are two key dynamics that are involved with prayer for us. The first is that it is a primary means to restore and foster our relationship with the King. It is a primary means for us to restore and foster our relationship with the King. And the second is the prayer is a primary means by which we advance his kingdom on this earth. So there's a dual emphasis to the prayer. Uh, one is that we draw near to God, we walk with him, uh, we spend time with him, we, we get to know him, we learn to hear his voice, uh, everything that goes with that. We find comfort, we find encouragement. But there's also the element of prayer where we are advancing God's kingdom on this planet. The kingdom is spiritual, so it requires spiritual means to advance. Now, these things are all good and biblical, and I, I don't think that we run into a whole lot of, of conflict as far as the general principles involved. But here's where I think we struggle, or at least I've struggled in the past. When we stop and we think about God's sovereignty, we think about who he is, and we think about that he, I mean, he is the, the, the king of glory. He is full of all wisdom and all knowledge. He has um, planned for us to come into his kingdom since the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world. When we stop and we think about these things, I think it's easy for us to begin to think that our prayers don't really change anything. That our prayers are primarily about our relationship with Him and not so much about advancing His kingdom on this earth. And I think it's very easy for us to begin to fall into that mindset where we begin to think, well, what does it matter if I pray? Because it's going to happen anyway. God's ordained it. You know, what He's going to do is going to do. And, and does it really matter if I pray? And for me, I realized that that was a really dangerous way of thinking because it misses a big part of what the Lord has called me to do in this life. Let me read from um, Acts chapter 12. There's a, a story that is, uh, many of us have, have read as leaders. And it, well, let me just read it. We'll start with verses one and, um, verse 1 and read through 5. It says, Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. 
When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. Now, I think we've all read this story at one time or another. And we know that, you know, God sends an angel and he delivers Peter and Peter goes back to the house where everybody's praying and the servant girl comes out and doesn't believe that it's Peter. And, you know, it's kind of a humorous story here. My question is this, though. If we were to read this passage without verse 5, how would we interpret it? If we took away the verse where it says that prayer for him was being made fervently by the church, how would we think about this? We'd ask questions like, why did James die and Peter not? Did God love Peter more than James? Did James have sin in his life? Was James' time up? Peter had more work to do? I mean, those are the questions that we would, I think that we would ask. Or did the fervent prayers of God's people actually lead to Peter's release? Why didn't they pray as intently for James as they did for Peter? Maybe James' death caught them by surprise. Uh, maybe they just assumed that he would get released the way the other leaders had gotten released. We really don't know. But likely what happened was that his death was a wake-up call. And they realized, wow, this is serious stuff. And so when Peter got arrested, they're like, We're, we are praying. We are buckling down and we are praying. But here's the conflict. Here's the question. Where is the line between the influence of our prayers and what God has already planned to do? That's the question. I mean, why pray if he's already predetermined it? You know what I'm saying? And this brings us back to this issue of sovereignty and free will. Where is the line between God's sovereignty and our human free will? Now, here's what I think. I think that we want to draw a clear firm line, but I think it's impossible for us to do so. I'm not saying there isn't a line. I'm saying that we don't have the ability to be able to mark that line. So God is sovereign. We have freedom. The Lord hears our prayers. He's going to answer our prayers according to his will. Where we delineate everything, where we make this line to say this is where God answers or this is what he has ordained or this is where he's sovereign or this is where we have freedom, I think it's a mistake for us to go down that road and to try to establish that point. Because if we, if we take the questions that I've asked here, we can spend all day um, just kind of going oh, until our brains explode. Because we just don't have the ability to see the way that God sees. We don't, we don't know what he has ordained or how it all works together. We just don't. But here's what we do know. We do know that he calls us, even commands us to pray. And that he promises that he will hear our prayers and that he will answer them. And that those prayers will have an influence in this world. That's the thing that we've got to get settled. You know, if we want to sit around someday and look at the sky and think about those other things, that's entirely fine. But when it comes to the practical aspects of praying, the theology of prayer, I think that we've got to have it settled in our hearts 
that as God's children, we come to him and we pray. And because this kingdom is spiritual and it requires spiritual means to advance, he has given us the opportunity to advance his kingdom through prayer. This is a privilege and the opportunity that we have. And it is a reality regardless of whether or not we're able to delineate where one thing ends or another begins. That's what I've come to with it. Physical service, generosity, those types of things matter. Absolutely, our actions matter. But without prayer, the effect of our service is going to be minimal. Because the battle is a battle that takes place in the heavens. It's a spiritual dynamic that goes on. And so everything that we do is rooted in prayer in order to be effective. Now, I, I can't imagine, you know, when I think about our own ministry efforts for the years that we, we've served, I can't imagine where we would be if it were not for prayer. Um, number one is that if, I, if I'm going to have anything to offer, it's got to come through from the throne of heaven. And, you know, I've got a, a pretty much a daily routine uh, where I sit on my, my chair and I, well, I, I'll talk about my prayer life in a minute, but where I pray and then I take time and I read the scriptures and I'm praying for God to give me wisdom and insight and to teach me his ways uh, because I've learned that if I'm not drawing from the throne of heaven, I don't have anything to offer as a leader. It's got to come from him. And so this prayer life has to be a part of, of what I'm doing. Our ministry is funded and sustained by prayer. We, you know, we've been at this as a career for about 20 years, and I could count on one, one hand the number of times that I've actually asked for money. Uh, for the most part, it's coming to the Lord and praying for him to provide, and he does. Uh, so we, we are sustained in so many ways by prayer. We've been able to navigate some really difficult seasons. I mean, if you, life itself has all kinds of difficulty. Ministry has so much more. And I can't imagine uh, us having been able to, to navigate those seasons if it were not for us praying and for people praying for us. And then just the effectiveness. You know, ministry becomes effective not because we have something great to offer, but because God is working in us and through us as we serve as his stewards. Uh, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us who, who, who makes the impact. He's the one that makes it happen. And so again, we're looking at spiritual means as we go to the Lord in prayer. So what I'm saying is that prayer is not the only thing that we do, but it is integral to everything that we do. Prayer is not the only thing that we do, but it is integral to everything that we do. And this is the challenge that lies before us, that we unseat the controlling powers of darkness that have no legal right to this earth, and we do it without controlling means. This is our challenge, that we unseat the controlling powers, but we do it without controlling means. We're always going to be tempted toward control. Uh, anybody that, that raises kids uh, or has raised kids, you, you understand that, that works with kids, you might have a really good desire for that child, but you aren't going to accomplish it by trying to control them into what you want. It's got to happen through prayer and through the wisdom of God. All of this converges in what we call the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. 
And we see within the Lord's Prayer a really powerful pattern for us when it comes to this issue of, of prayer. And let me, let me just briefly review it, and then we'll do a, a Q&A time. Jesus said, When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask them. See, there's that, that hint of God's sovereignty. He knows what you need before you ask Him. But what does He say? Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The Lord's Prayer provides for us a necessary pattern of restoring God's divine order by inviting His kingdom into our sphere. <laughs> What's kind of ironic about this is that in churches all over the, the world, people pray this prayer as part of their church service, and then they battle for control over the color of the carpet and, and things like that. Um, the whole idea here is, and, and this is one of, the, one of the absolute keys to effective leadership, is that we are bringing God's kingdom to bear in the sphere in which we are leading. I'm not talking about passivity. I'm not talking about sitting back and uh, not doing anything or not actively leading. What I'm saying is that the key to Christian leadership is whatever sphere we are in that we are serving, whether it be a small group or a... Um, Sunday school class, or it, it can be anything. It doesn't matter what it is. It can be in your workplace. Uh, whatever sphere we are leading, we are surrendering control. We are inviting His kingdom to bear in that situation. And as His kingdom comes to bear, everything begins to change. The powers of the strongholds of darkness are broken. God brings life and wholeness and healing and restoration. All of those things come with the kingdom of light. And so the, the secret for us is that we learn how to wisely bring God's kingdom and authority in our sphere that we are serving. And prayer is the primary means by which we do that. There will always be controlling powers that are trying to advance their own purposes. And our challenge is to put aside those powers and to invite voluntarily to invite God to be the king over the circumstances. And when we can learn how to do that on a consistent basis, everything begins to change. And we see the life of God poured out uh, in our circumstances, in our situations. We see redemption. We see people's lives transformed. Uh, I, I just go on with story after story of, of situations where I've seen where um, a, a, an organization was in a mess until somebody came in and learned how to draw upon God's kingdom and to see the restoration and the wholeness begin to take place. So our prayers matter. They make a huge difference. And this is something that we have to get settled in our hearts. Regardless of where we are with the issue of God's sovereignty and human free will and where the line is between them, uh, regardless of that, We've got to settle it in our hearts that we have our Heavenly Father's ear and that He calls us to advance His kingdom through prayer and that when we pray, 
that makes a difference in people's lives. Amen. So, any thoughts or questions on your part? This is the part where you're allowed to give input or ask a question or any of that. Can we do the mic? I was just wondering um, if maybe you could just touch on our response um, when we are praying and, and sometimes it's God's sovereignty that things happen one way and sometimes it's, you know, yeah. his will that, that those prayers make a difference and stuff. Um, how do we walk through that uh, with faith? And <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that in the second session because we... See, you're ahead of me, which is great. Um, no, you're anticipating where we're going. Um, because we, are, we do have situations where it doesn't seem like the prayers are being answered, or at least not the way that we expect them to be. So there is a, an aspect of learning how to manage that. So we will go there, Dave. So um, if I don't answer that, we'll make sure we do later. Good. Anybody else? Nothing like saying, hey, have a question, but I'm not going to answer it. <laughs> Is there anything that wasn't clear? Can you uh, just talk a little bit about the, the line here on page four stuck out to me about the challenges to unseat the controlling powers of darkness that have no legal right to earth, but to do so without controlling means. Can you kind of talk more about the without controlling means part of that? Like, um, we pray and we trust God to act, but then where's like the balance between, you said, you know, our actions absolutely matter. Yeah, yeah. And we'll, just the controlling means part of that. I can, I, I'll give you an illustration. Uh, I may have shared it here before, I'm not sure. I, uh, I think of parenting in particular. I, you know, we've got two kids who are grown adults now and they've turned out fairly well. Well, very well, we'll say very well. Um, they've turned out very well. But as teenagers, there were those moments, you know, um, where you looked at them and just, you know, look at my son and think, this kid going to end up in jail? You know, I'm, like, I'm not sure where this kid is going. I've got some serious concerns. And uh, both of them, for different reasons, we had that season where, you know, uh, I was just worried about them. I was worried about where their future was going to lead. And I found myself anxious and fretting and trying to kind of manipulate and control circumstances. And I, I remember going to God in prayer one day, and the Lord spoke to me. And he doesn't do that a lot, um, but at that point it was very clear. And it wasn't an audible voice, but it was very clear. Um, where he made known to me that I was trying to control the kids. And, and this is what he spoke. He said, if you want to be their God, it's up to you to change their hearts. But if you want me to be their God, I'll change their hearts. And I realized in that moment that I was the one trying to impose my will on the kids. Now, I was still a parent. I still had a responsibility of leadership in the home. 
there still needed to be discipline, you know, if their actions were out of bounds, I still needed to, to, to deal with that. I still needed to shepherd their hearts and, and to love them and, and challenge them or encourage them or whatever. But what changed was my inner attitude where I began to embrace what um, David Foster calls, I think Richard, Richard Foster calls, the uh, prayer of relinquishment, the prayer of relinquishment. And it was essentially this, that I would come to, to the Lord in prayer for the kids and I would say, Lord, you are the perfect parent. I am not the perfect parent. I know that you are. These are your children and I surrender them into your care and I am asking you to have your way in their lives. And I'm asking you to give me the wisdom to parent them to the best of my ability. And so that prayer became a staple in my life during that season because what it did was it enabled me to surrender control without abdicating my responsibility. And that prayer of surrender has been a part of the leadership of our organization, our ministry, pretty much since we started. I routinely pray that prayer. Lord, this is your organization. I surrender it to you. We want your will. We want to accomplish your purposes. Whatever you want to do in this situation or whatever you want to do through this organization, this is your call. I'm just asking you for the wisdom to do what, what I need to do. And so that posturing, if, I want to, if you want to put it that way, it's a posturing where, um, to me, it aligns with the Lord's prayer. It's a posturing that, that aligns with God's design, that he is the king, I am the steward, and my job is to fulfill his purposes by inviting his authority to bear in this given situation. So that's kind of a long answer. I don't know if it really answered it for you or not. But I have found that, uh, that posture of, Lord, it's your kingdom, it's your family, your children, whatever it is, uh, I'm asking you to work. I'm believing that you're going to work. I'm believing that you have good desires, believing that you hear the prayers, and then I'm asking you for the wisdom to do the thing that you've called me to do. And I, I think that that applies for, you know, a small group. It applies for children. It applies for... Uh, a job. It can be for a job circumstance, for anything pretty much. But as God's representatives, we're not going in and asserting our own authority. We are going as stewards and we are asserting the authority, asserting the authority of the King of Glory. Good question, Mark. Good question, Mark. Um, never mind. Any, anybody else? Any thoughts or questions? Okay, so we are going to take a break and then um, we'll come back in about 10 minutes and we're going to talk about cultivating a vibrant prayer life and we'll look some more at mindsets and then we'll also look at some practical tips, uh, practical steps that we can take. So 10 minutes, please. In this, we're going to split it into two parts. The first, I'm going to talk about more about mindsets, and then we're also going to get into our practices, some of the practical things that we do. So beginning, we're going to talk about how mindsets matter, and I've, I've got several items with this. The first is that because kingdoms are at war, prayer involves warfare. Because kingdoms are at war, prayer involves warfare. We are welcoming the kingdom of light and we are vanquishing the kingdom of darkness. 
Um, if we've been around for any length of time, we're familiar with Ephesians chapter 6, verses 12, 10 to 12, where uh, Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. This is a well-known verse, but the question is, do we believe it? Do we believe it? When we, when we look at, um, say for example, the political landscape of our nation, and we see the, the conflict, and we see you know, so many of the crazy things that are happening, do we see spiritual entities that are behind that? Or are we identifying individuals and, and proclaiming them to be our enemies, so to speak? Uh, so the, the key here is that we recognize there is a spiritual dynamic going on. Um, I'm not suggesting that we focus on demonic powers. I think it's unhealthy to make that a focus. But at the same time, neither can we be ignorant. Uh, we don't want to have a kind of a head-in-the-sand mentality. And, and there's certainly value to what I would call comfort prayers. You know, when we're, we're struggling and we, you know, we plop before the Lord and we just say, Lord, I'm having a hard time and... Uh, you know, thank you that you're near and I'm, I'm, I'm asking for your help. I, I get that. And that's certainly a part of life. Um, but there's also an element of waging warfare through prayer. Matthew eleven twelve, Jesus made a statement that is really mysterious. He said, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. Now we struggle to know exactly what he meant but the idea behind it is that we are not talking about something passive. And this is the point that I'm trying to communicate here, is that, um, and I'll, I'll speak of myself specifically, but I think it's true of a lot of us as Americans, is that I am way too passive in my prayer sometimes. You know, it, like I get the surrender part. I've talked about that, the importance of surrendering, but that's not all that there is. When we have surrendered, there is an element of being aggressive uh, in our prayers, almost violent in our prayers. You know, what, what does it say in the Scriptures about Jesus? That he prayed uh, with, with a loud voice and with tears. I mean, he was not passive in his prayers whenever he came and he broke the strongholds of darkness in our world. So we've got to learn to move beyond a passive mindset when it comes to prayer. Number two, faith is not optional. Faith is not optional. Uh, and this kind of refers to, to what Dave was asking about. You know, the battle of faith is one of the biggest fights that we are going to fight regarding prayer. Uh, I mean, number one, if we don't believe that our prayers are going to make a difference, why bother to pray? I, I remember a time when I was um, newly newly saved, a brand new Christian, and I was, my roommate and I had been best friends through high school. This was at college. We had been best friends through high school. And me becoming a Christian really threw a wrench in our friendship. It, it created some problems. And so I was, I was just praying for, for God to touch him, and I started praying that he would come to one of our campus fellowship meetings. And I'm praying, and I'm praying, and I'm praying, and nothing happens. And I just thought, What's the sense? You know, he's not going to come. And so I quit praying. 
And so not long after that, uh, he and I got in an argument, and, and he says, you know, I was this close to coming to one of your fellowship meetings. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, I quit too soon. Here's the truth, the cold truth of it is that the kingdom operates by faith. And when we pray, we need to exercise faith. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, uh, it just sends a really almost harsh message, strong message. It says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Ouch. Ouch. Uh, I don't think that's meant to be a condemning statement, but it is. it presents a reality that if we're going to pray, we really need to pray in faith. We need to believe that, that God is answering. And so one of the keys here is cultivating faith. Uh, I've come to the point where, you know, I'm a lot more honest with God than I used to be. So if I'm praying about something and I'm not believing, I'm going to say, Lord, I'm struggling to trust you on this. Um, Lord, I, you know, in principle, I know that you can do this, but I'm having a hard time believing it. And so I'm asking you to do a work in my heart. So we, we cultivate faith by, by focusing on God's goodness, on recognizing his sovereignty, that he's all-powerful, uh, recognizing that he hears our prayers, you know, standing on some scripture in that regard, recognizing that he regards our prayers, that he'll respond to our prayers, that our prayers will make a difference. I'm not necessarily saying that we use a, a mental checklist or anything like that, but the idea here is that we cultivate faith when we pray. As a Christian, I am challenged to move beyond praying and fretting to praying and believing. See, I, in the past, I've been really good at praying and fretting. Where I, you know, I get in a situation and it's not good, and I'm praying and I'm saying, Lord, can you do something? In the meantime, I'm just thinking, oh, this is bad, that's bad. Oh, no. I'm fretting over it. And I don't know that that accomplishes anything. And so the Lord's been challenging me to pray and to believe. Uh, I'm not... I'm not denying that the situation is bad. What I'm just simply saying is I don't care how it looks, God. You are faithful to hear my prayers. You're faithful to answer my prayers. And I am going to believe that you're going to answer those prayers, no matter how it looks. So we want to move beyond praying and fretting to actually praying and believing. The third thing here um, with our mindsets is that we have our Heavenly Father's ear. We have His ear. One of um, my favorite passages in regard to prayer is 1 John 5, 14 and 15. It says, This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Think about that. The God who created the heavens and the earth as his children we have his ear. And so this is, I've, I've got a group of um, scripture passages that I review on a routine basis. This is one of them. 
because I, I remind myself, God, that you hear and you answer prayer. This is especially important because sometimes it seems as though our prayers aren't being answered. And we have to ask ourselves the question of how do we, how do we navigate those circumstances? I mean, I, I think there are some prayers that don't get answered. One of them is, uh, one of the reasons is unbelief. We just saw that in James. Uh, when Jesus went and was, uh, I can't remember where he was, but I think it was his hometown, hometown, it said there was not, there were not many healed. He did not heal many because of their unbelief. There was a corporate unbelief in that community that hindered God from working. And so it's individual, but it's also corporate that uh, when we fail to exercise faith, we limit the answers to, to prayer. So sometimes we're not praying in faith. Sometimes we are out of alignment with God's will. And, and that can be twofold. One is that, you know, maybe I'm living in sin and I'm expecting that, you know, living according to my own selfish ways and I'm expecting him to answer prayer. That doesn't work very well. Or maybe my prayer is not quite in alignment with God's will. You know, when I look out over the, the course of my life, there have been specific prayers that I prayed intently that didn't get answered. And, um, you know, at the time I was kind of devastated. Lord, where are you? And then in retrospect, I was like, wow, that was really good that that didn't get answered. Um, and, and so we've got to learn to trust him above all, and not necessarily just for the answer, but there's this process of learning to align our will with his will. And that's, you know, when I talked about the prayer of relinquishment and surrender, that's part of the alignment is we're aligning with his will. Sometimes it's not the right timing. You know, that... Uh, we especially, we are the instantaneous generation, you know, of man, if that fast food burger isn't done within two minutes, uh, I am furious about it. That, that's what we've come to. Prayer is very different. Sometimes prayers stew for a long time before God answers them. And we've got to believe through that process. There's a... Um, this is kind of off, not in my notes, but in Revelation, there's a, a picture of God over his throne, over a bowl of incense that it says are the prayers of the saints. And, you know, the imagery behind it is that as we pray, those prayers ascend to heaven and they begin to fill that bowl. Uh, and they might fill the bowl and fill the bowl. And then a certain point happens where the bowl spills over and all the prayers are answered. But the idea is that it's not an instantaneous thing. Just because I pray right now doesn't mean that I'm going to get an answer right now. Uh, God will answer in the best timing, but rarely is his timing our timing. And, and so the key is just to, to realize, to be patient and not lose heart and realize that uh, if, I'm, if I'm confident that this is his will, then I just trust that in his time he will answer. And then sometimes I think that our prayers are, are too passive. It's kind of like taking a pocket knife into a sword fight. You know, it's just not going to work very well. And there are some circumstances that are just intense circumstances, circumstances where there are strongholds that the enemy has established. And, and if we go into those with a, you know, um, Lord, please bless this situation type of a mindset, 
I'm not sure that it's going to accomplish a whole lot. And, uh, and again, I don't understand the dynamics of that. I'm not saying that God doesn't listen. But, you know, there is this element of, of a spiritual violence involved. And if we are entirely passive, I don't know that we're going to see the results that we, we could see otherwise. If we walk by sight rather than faith, we're going to find ourselves going down a discouraging road. I, I had a conversation not too long ago with a friend, and um, he's, he's kind of at a crisis of faith, um, almost, you know, he's been a Christian all his life, in his late 30s maybe, uh, sort of at a crisis in faith, and his reasoning was that he has seen so many unanswered prayers. And the more he looked at the lack of answers according to his wisdom, the more doubt began to take root in his heart. And that's not where we want to go. You know, uh, we will see answers, but we must persevere in faith. We must stand on his word and we must trust him regardless of how it looks. If we don't pray by faith, prayer becomes that obligation that I was talking about earlier that... You know, well, I should be praying because that's something I'm supposed to do. Uh, but when we're praying by faith, we're actually believing that God's going to do something that's going to make a difference. The, the fourth point here is that God promises that we will possess the gates of our enemies. We will possess the gates of our enemies. There's two passages that I want to draw on. The first is, Genesis chapter 22, when the Lord spoke to, um, to Abraham, excuse me, and this is after he was willing to sacrifice his son. Genesis 22, we'll pick it up in verse 15. It says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you. And I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. Your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. You understand that we are Abraham's seed. We are his spiritual heirs. We are his descendants. And so this is a promise um, that was for us, that we would possess the gates of our enemies. And then if we go to Matthew chapter 16, we find the, the kind of the New Testament complement to this verse. Uh, let me start with uh, verse 13. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barzona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say also that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now here's the thing that we've got to settle in our hearts. The gates of a city are defensive. They're defensive. They are not offensive. They are defensive. So when we read passages of, like this, what it's saying is that 
the people of God, the descendants of Abraham, are the aggressors. We're not coming into this with a whole the fort mindset that says we're just going to gather in our little holy huddle and we are going to hold on until Jesus comes back someday. No, the mindset here is one of aggression. The mindset is that we are going to go into the world and we are going to pray and we are going to see the strongholds of darkness broken and we are going to see people that are in captivity liberated and set free for the glory of God. That's the mentality that we see at work when it comes to kingdom prayer. You know, you, you think about um, what's going on right now in, in the Ukraine, and it, it takes a little bit of a mental gymnastic on this, but, uh, but imagine the situation, and I understand, I'm not saying that this is the case, but imagine that the case was that the Ukrainians were in the land and it wasn't theirs. That they were in the land and that they were um, keeping people in captivity. And, and the Russians came in as the liberators. They came in as the aggressors in order to set them free. Uh, that's obviously reversed from what we understand the situation. But it helps us to understand the dynamics when it comes to the kingdom of God. You know, whatever sphere God has given you, whether it be the school, the classroom that your child attends, or, or your work environment, or your neighborhood, or whatever it is, uh, there's a good likelihood that there is a sphere there where the powers of darkness have settled in they are controlling, they are destroying, they are killing and stealing, they are keeping people bound in darkness, they're destroying families, whatever's involved in that. And, and what God is saying is, as my child, you are an aggressor to come into this situation in prayer, and the gates of hell will not be able to stand against you as you pray and you believe. That's the mindset, I think, that belongs or should belong to the children of God. And I'm not so sure that that's the mindset that we carry. I know that it isn't, you know, I'm not an aggressive person. So uh, I'm the kind of guy that says I'm a lover, not a, not a fighter, you know. Uh, but this is a kingdom mindset. And I, I've, I've got some friends who are involved with a international prayer ministry. And this is what they, have do, they do. And they have seen nation-changing prayers. They have gone in and prayer walked and uh, bound the powers of darkness and invited the kingdom of God. And on a government level, they have seen change in nations. And I have to say that that's kind of a rare thing in our day. I think that most of us as Christians are just pretty passive when it comes to prayer. But what, what my hope is, is that that mindset will begin to shift and we will begin to realize that we are the aggressors for the sake of our king. For the sake of our king. That we want to advance into new territory because his desire is to see people liberated and set free. And then finally, the last part of, of the mindsets is that overcoming prayer requires a persevering mindset. It requires a persevering mindset. You know, there are going to be times when it looks and it feels as though our prayers are bouncing off the heavens. That's, that's just the nature of life in this world. Um, there are going to be times when the passion of those around us begins to, to ebb and, and maybe die off. 
Those are the seasons when we need to stay the course. And that, that's probably one of the phrases that I use most when it comes to corporate prayer is stay the course. Stay the course. Do what God has called you to do and continue to pray and believe regardless of what anybody else is doing. A, uh, a passage with, for this in Luke chapter 11 is, is a classic um, that I think is a big deal because it encourages us to persevere in prayer. I, I once had a, um, a pastor who said that, you know, when you pray about something, pray about it once, leave it at the throne of God, otherwise you're not believing. That sounded nice, but it's not biblical. Let's read in Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 10. Jesus said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. And in the Greek, there is, the, the Greek tense here is that he who asks and keep asking. Knock and keep knocking. Seek and keep knock, Keep seeking. There is a persistence that is involved in prayer. Now, absolutely, we don't want to be persisting in a whiny kind of way. Oh, God, please, you know, not really believing that he's going to answer. But the Lord himself tells us to persist in prayer, even when it doesn't look like we're going to see the answers. So we learn how to stay the course, no matter what it looks like, no matter what anybody else is doing. If we have the conviction that this is God's will, we pray and we continue to believe regardless. Now let's, let's switch gears just a little bit. And I, I want to talk about our, uh, our practices, some of the practices that we can employ in, in our prayer life. The, the first is, I guess it's kind of a mindset as well, but it relates to the practice. Put aside any condemnation and the burden to have a perfect prayer life. Put aside any condemnation and the burden to have a perfect prayer life. You know, it is so easy for us to get caught up in styles and techniques and to think that, you know, I've got to be doing it this way or it has to be exactly that way. Or we begin to think that, you know, I'm not as eloquent as so-and-so when it comes to prayer or I'm not sure that I said it just right or I can't pray unless I'm... On, um, uh, in my prayer closet, or um, I feel guilty because I fell asleep last time I prayed. I mean, I don't know if you're anything like me, but that's happened once or twice, okay? Uh, kind of like a baby sitting in a high chair and falling asleep with food in their mouth. I don't know. But, uh, you know, we, we do that type of thing, and it, it's easy for us to begin to develop this mindset that my practices have to be perfect in order for God to hear. No, it doesn't. Um, we just need to, to come to him in faith as his children. You know, we don't have to write out perfect prayers. We don't have to be exactly eloquent. We just need to be in love with the Lord and to believe as we pray. 
I think it helps, at least for me, to accept that my efforts are going to be less than perfect, okay? Let's just get that established from the very beginning. What I do is going to be less than perfect. I can accept that. If God can accept it, then we're good to go. It's not your perfection that rises before the throne of heaven. It's your faith and your love. And that's the essence of what we're going to do. Number two for our practices, pray in the Spirit frequently. I am a firm believer in praying in tongues. Uh, no condemnation if somebody doesn't have that gift, but it is a powerful gift that, that God has given us. Um, 1 Corinthians 14.4 says that he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. And when we pray in tongues, it fans a flame in our hearts to help impart the life of God, to bring the life of God to bear it. Man, I don't know if you're anything like me, but especially in the middle of January when it's dark and cold and gray, I need life. I need life. And so praying in the Spirit helps to, to foster that life. That leads into the next one is develop a routine that creates time for habitual prayer. Develop a routine that creates time for habitual prayer. For me, and you know, life has its seasons, so everybody's at a different stage with different, different things. Everybody, you've got to find a system that works for you, essentially is what I'm saying. Uh, but for me, uh, six days a week, I get up in the morning and I crawl onto our, my elliptical machine and I start moving, it's nice and slow to begin with, and I start praying in the spirit right away. It's how I start my day. Some people use coffee. I can't drink coffee. So I, I, I crawl on the elliptical and I start exercising and I start praying in the Spirit. And I will do that for, for probably at least 20 minutes or 30 minutes a day, sometimes longer. Um, it gives me an opportunity to jumpstart not only my thinking, but to focus on the Lord, to welcome the Holy Spirit, to to edify me, to build me up, to bring life. And obviously, I'm bringing prayers before the throne of heaven. And so each day, I have a different set of prayers. I have a different group of people that I pray for and um, lift them up before the Lord uh, during that time. But the point here is that I've learned to make it habitual. I've learned to make it a habit. Real change comes in our lives with habits. And so find a way to make prayer habitual. Uh, another thing that I am a firm believer in is corporate prayer. And I'll, I'll talk about that here in a, in a second. But I, I think it's integral to, uh, to us as Christians is that we pray together. And so I make corporate prayer habitual. You know, we've, we've got, um, saw your nice little signs coming in that we're praying for Indiana. Uh, we've been a part of that with the Indiana Pastors Network, and, and we meet once a month uh, to pray somewhere in the community at one of the churches or at a prayer walk. And um, I make that habitual. As soon as I find out when those prayer meetings are going to be, they are on my calendar. And if I can make it, I'm going to make it. Uh, I don't have to do everything that happens but I need to be habitual in making sure that I take the time to pray and specifically to schedule the prayer. When I know there's something, uh, an opportunity come up or whatever, uh, I'm getting it on the calendar and I'm doing my best to set that time aside so that I can pray. 
if I wait until I feel inspiration to pray, it's not going to happen very often, to be honest with you. If I wait until I feel inspired, it's not going to happen much. And the danger there is that my prayers become reactionary instead of opportunistic. And, I, and again, I, you know, I'm speaking as an American. I think that this is really common for us. We are good reactionary prayers. You know, um, if you follow Facebook, look at your Facebook feed and you'll, you'll find dozens of pray for Ukraine um, posts, which I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. But the question is, where, where were we praying before the invasion? You know, have we been praying for uh, other nations or other peoples or for circumstances? Or do we just wait until our lives get so uncomfortable and unpleasant that now we feel like we have to pray? You know, the, the point here is that if we can be habitual in our prayers, if we can make, them, make it a habit to pray, somehow to put it within our schedule, whether it be corporate or individual, uh, that's when it will be a, a part of our lives. <coughs> Another key in this is that we transform mundane experiences by becoming a prayer opportunist. We, we transform mundane experiences. What am I saying? Can you pray while you're doing the dishes? Can you pray while you're driving to work? I'm not suggesting you close your eyes or anything like that. Can you turn down the noise to pray? I mean, if you think about it, there's a lot of mundane in life. There's a lot of just daily responsibilities that we go through. And a lot of times, you know, we just want to fill our, our lives with noise or something like that. Can we take some of those opportunities and turn them into prayer opportunities where we draw near to the Lord and we take the burdens that are on our hearts or, or we pray for his burdens to be on our hearts to lift up some of the needs that are around us. And then finally, we want to pray with others who are inspired to pray. We want to pray with others who are inspired to pray. I am a firm believer that we need to have our own individual walks with God, that we have our own prayer closets, that we have our own individual prayer life. I, I'm an advocate of that from start to finish. But at the same time, there are some blessings from God that we will only experience as we come together as a body of Christ. There are some things we cannot get by ourselves with the Lord that they will only happen as we come together as the body of Christ because that's the way that God has designed it to be for his church. You know, we, we, I can have an individual worship time with God at home, but that's not the same as coming here with everybody and worshiping God together and seeing the Spirit begin to move in a corporate sense. And the same principle applies to prayer. You know, I can have an individual prayer life, and I, I certainly do, and I certainly recommend that. But there's also an element of it that just begins to shift when we come together as the body of Christ to pray. Let me share a couple of uh, passages and then we'll close. Matthew 18, verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, Again, I say to you that if two, or, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, 
it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Well, isn't he there if we're there by ourselves? Yeah, but he, what he's saying here is there's something special about us coming together corporately as the body of Christ to pray. When we do that, there's a promise that God is going to visit us. You know, and I, I mentioned the uh, Indiana Pastors Network. We do the community prayers, and I've been to, you know, probably a couple dozen of those meetings by now, and every one, God visits in a unique way. Every one, I come away somehow inspired. Uh, why? Because we're coming together as the body of Christ, and when we do that, when we put aside the barriers and we come together as one, the Spirit of God visits us in a really powerful way. And then Isaiah 56, verses 5 through 6. Prophecy from Isaiah. It says, Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, every one of them who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast My covenant, even those I will bring to My holy mountain and make them joyful in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. And then verse 7 is the one. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. I cannot escape that verse. Because it tells something to us about God's intention for the church. My house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. God's passion is for the nations to know Him. And a primary means by which that happens is the people of God gather together and pray for the nations. There, there was a, um, oh, it was probably 20, 25 years ago when there began to be an emphasis on praying for the 1040 window, uh, which is the, you know, between the 10th and 40th latitudes, uh, a section of the earth that is predominantly unreached and predominantly Muslim. And many of the countries are closed to the gospel. And so people began to pray. Christians began to pray for the 1040 window. And prayer organizations began to publish prayer guides and people would intercede. And if you study it out, you'll see that in many of those countries today, God is moving in a powerful way in spite of the governments being closed. Iran has one of the fastest growing churches uh, in the world in spite of the government being closed to the gospel. And if you get into it and you begin to research what's happening, there are all kinds of miraculous things that are taking place where Jesus is coming to people in dreams and, and they're getting saved. And a lot of it is stuff that is beyond any human influence. Why? Because God's people have been inviting him through prayer into those circumstances to see people set free into lives changed, see lives changed. And so I, I think I, I just can't get away from this verse that says that as a church, as the body of Christ, one of the primary things that the Lord desires for us is that we would be a house of prayer for all the peoples. Yes, he wants to meet our individual needs. Yes, he wants to meet the needs and, and touch the lives of those in our neighborhood, in our community, in our sphere. But he is also a God for the nations. 
And so we have this amazing opportunity, and I want to say it that way, not as an obligation, but as an opportunity. We have an opportunity to join with others and to unseat the powers of darkness and to see God's life and love poured out on the nations. That to me is an amazing thing. So I want to I take a few minutes and actually pray together. But before we go there, are there any other thoughts or questions related to, to what I've just talked about? I don't want to leave anything hanging. If you've, if you've got a question or a thought or, or anything related So everybody was either sleeping or I communicated really well. <laughs> we good? Going once, going twice? Okay. So uh, what I'd like to do is, is take a few minutes and um, let, let, me, let me say one more thing and then we'll enter into a time of prayer. Something that I didn't mention uh, in this is it's really easy for us to become burdened and weighed down by the concerns of the world. And they're valid concerns, you know, whether it be our nation, whether it be what's happening uh, overseas, whether it be our neighborhood, our family, the school, whatever. There's a million things for us to be concerned about and to weigh us down. And uh, we know from the parable of the sower that when we live under that burden of anxiety, it really hinders us from being fruitful and what God's called us to do. And so the question is, how do, you, how do you deal with this? Well, prayer is one of the keys in learning to put aside the burden, learning to throw the burden back onto God's shoulders instead of carrying it ourselves. So we're not hardening our hearts. We're not abdicating responsibility. We're not taking a I don't care approach. What we're doing is, is those things that come upon us that weigh us down, we are coming to God in prayer and we are bringing him before his throne and we are putting them back onto his shoulders, not in an irresponsible kind of a way, but through prayer where we can see his kingdom come and see it advanced in those situations. And, and as I'm saying this, I'm, I'm getting the sense that we've got at least one or two people in this room where you have a real sensitivity to God's heart and to those burdens. And that you need to understand that the burdens are not just a matter of you being worried about something. It's a matter of God putting his concerns on your heart so that you can take them to prayer in order to see, to invite him in to work in those situations. So the thing that's been really heavy on our hearts recently, obviously, is the situation in Ukraine. And when we look at that, it's really easy for us to pray and to fret. You know, well, this is really out of control and Putin's a mess and look what's happening to the poor Ukrainian people, which it is a, a terrible thing. Um, but what if we look at it from the eye of faith, and what if we say, man, this is an opportunity for God to move, uh, to see his spirit poured out upon the people who maybe were comfortable otherwise, or, um, you know, we're not advocating war by any means, but we are asking that the kingdom of God will come into these lives and these families in this situation. We're asking him that he will work in a powerful way regardless of how it looks. This is something similar to what's transpired in Afghanistan, you know, the the mess that was there, on paper, we should not have been there. Um, but when you look at what God's done in Afghanistan over the past 20 years, there are a whole lot of people who are believers now who were not before. 
So we don't understand how all this works, but we can pray and we can believe that the kingdom of God is going to come and bring life to the people that are struggling, uh, both in Ukraine and in Russia. So, so I want to take a little bit of time. I don't know if we're best to do this in small groups or as a large group. What's your thought, Mark? We're not very large. So, <laughs> so let's, let's just take a little bit of time. And, um, you know, you're all leaders, so we're going to give you the freedom to, to pray out loud. Um, not going to necessarily come over and, and judge what you're saying. Um, but let's just take our heart before the Lord, the, the burdens that we all feel for the nation of Ukraine and for the situation over there. And, and let's lift them up before the Lord. Let's pray for the nations and invite God to work together. <laughs> 